0: I'd now like to introduce um, Andrew Douch. Um, Andrew is currently the ICT innovation leader at Wanganui Park Secondary College. He believes that education needs to adopt new approaches to communication with a new generation of learners. Um, we want to encourage, or sorry, he wants to encourage widespread adoption of easy to use technologies that are high concept and have the power to transform class interaction. So if you could please welcome Andrew to the stage. Great. Well, it's lovely to be here, Um, and uh, I'm from Victoria in Shepparton, and uh, so it's 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 awesome. I flew up this morning, and the train from the airport is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Really, as well. It's fast. Um, Certainly better than trying to get anywhere from Tullamarine. It's interesting to me um, that when you look around the world at at the way things have changed. Now, almost every industry has spent millions of dollars investing in ICT and, and what it's bought for them is amazing gains in productivity and savings in cost. In education, I don't think we're there yet. We've spent a lot of money and I haven't, have you seen, are our students learning better? Are they getting better qualified? Has it saved us any money? I don't think we're there yet. But I do think that we will be very soon. I think we just haven't quite seen ICT and the power that it can have um, yet. But those days are coming. Uh, It's been... 25, almost to the day, 25 years since I decided to become a teacher and I sat down the other day and I thought I just want to have a look and see what's happened in the world since I sat there at the end of my year 12 year and thought, I think I'm going to be a teacher well 25 years ago (laughs) Neighbours began Um, in the last quarter of a century Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, this is his terminal Uh, you can see his diagram of the internet as it was Um, Then, Um, that's in the last quarter of a century. GPS technology, how amazing is that and how much has it transformed, you know, not only modern warfare but just, you know, driving from one place to another. Storage of media on DVDs and CDs, that's happened in the last 25 years. Mobile phone technology has happened in the last quarter of a century since I decided to become a teacher imaging of the brain and body using things like PET pet scans and CAT scans and magnetic resonance imaging has has completely transformed our understanding of of how we even think. And we've sequenced the entire genome from beginning to end. The human genome project um, has happened in the last quarter of a century, which has led to... um, Amazing advancements in our ability to identify people um, in paternity tests and forensic examinations and the pre-symptomatic testing of genetic disorders. Genetically modified crops has all happened in the last quarter of a century. I mean, it's been amazing. Um, Computers have gone from something that sits on your desk uh, to something that fits in your pocket and can do so much more. But classrooms... Over the last 25 years, you know, but you say, oh, but we have computers in classrooms now, but 25 years ago we did too. Not as many, of course, not as many, but, but pedagogically, I mean, we've got more computers in schools, there's no doubt about that. But what I'm talking about is, is how has our pedagogy changed over the last 25 years? How is, you know, I think, you could Somebody could have died 25 years ago, be brought back to life today and walk into most classrooms in Australia and they would know exactly what was going on, they would know exactly who held what positions in the room and what they were doing and what the process was. Really, none, I mean, That wouldn't happen if you went into the CSIRO. People would say, what? what's going on here? But in education we haven't seen those changes. Interactive whiteboards of course are new and that promised to revolutionise education because you know we have these groups of students clustered around the board sharing. But the reality is when I look at interactive whiteboards this is how it looks most of the time. You know still one person at the front of the room, 25 people in rows, one person controlling the show. Either the teacher or somebody delegated by the teacher. The people who are there are there because they live geographically close to the school. At the time, because the timetabler said that's when you have to be there. None of those parameters have changed. We're just using a cooler tool to do the same things we've always done. I love this quote, and I teach biology, I should say that from the outset, um, I don't teach IT, I've never taught IT, um, I've never even studied IT, um, I, have no, I have no technical background. Um, so I'm here at an e-learning conference because I think that today in the 21st century you don't really need to be good at computers to use computers to do very good things. I love this quote um, as a biology teacher because I think that you could pretty much define what it means to be human by this quote. You know, whether we're talking about Edison inventing the light bulb, you know, and putting electricity around just so we could light our homes, and look what we've done with electricity. You know, it was invented for light, but it transformed everything about us. The invention of powered flight. You know, everything that we invent as humans right from when Homo habilis realised you could sharpen the stones, as humans, this is what makes us different to other species, is that we create a tool, and then the tool doesn't just solve the problem that we created it for, but it changes the way we live, it changes how we live, who we live with, you know, how we communicate with them, it changes everything about us. And I think sometimes we despair when we look at our young people and we see them you know, interacting with each other differently than we did interacting with us differently than we interacted with our teachers. And we despair of that, I think, sometimes as adults. But I think it's really healthy for us to realise that when they're living their lives and interacting and communicating differently than what we did, it's not that they're doing something wrong, it's that they're being distinctively human. They're taking the tools that our generation has invented and they're using those tools to reinvent themselves. We've always done that. They're just doing it at, at, at an unprecedented rate. I think we're at a really important time in history, right here in 2010, we're at a really important point in history where two rivers of change that have been coming together a meeting. And, and I'm talking about the need for us to change as educators, as, as other industries have, and the opportunity to do it. It's now more necessary than ever that we look at the way we're teaching and, and ask the questions, are our paradigms about education what they should be? And it's also easy. I want to talk about the second thing, the, the ease of this. You know, There was a time when you wouldn't buy a car, it would have been dumb to buy a car if you weren't mechanically inclined. You know, but it's not like that anymore. Now, cars are so reliable that you don't even think about the car. Anyone can drive a car, even if they have no understanding of cars. Because you get in the car, you don't think about the mechanics, you think about where you're going and what you want to do when you get there. And I think it's like that with computers now too. You can, you can walk into a classroom and rely on using computers without the fear that there once was that it was going to let you down. You know, I mean, I walked in here, plugged in my Mac, set it up, you know, I didn't even, there was a time when I, there's no way I would have done this without first coming in and plugging it all together, making sure it was going to work, and, and you just trust it, and it works. And, and I think that we're, we're at that point now. But I want to go back to the first river of change, that, that there's, I'll make my point here, that there's no, there's never been a time in history when it's been more necessary for us as educators to change the way that we're communicating with students, and the way that we're helping them to communicate with each other, Um, Because if you're not convinced of the need to change, there's no point investing time and energy in making the change. So this is important to me. And again, coming from biology, there are two hemispheres of the brain and, and because of magnetic resonance imaging, we can watch people thinking and we know that our our simple ideas of the two hemispheres of the brain operating completely independently that we once held, that that, that was, you know, very simplistic. And in fact, the two hemispheres of the brain interact much more than was once thought. But it's still broadly true that, that they do different kinds of things. The left hemisphere of the brain is, is responsible for logical, linear, analytical, sequential thinking. It's about zero in on facts, you know, looking at a mass of information and zeroing in on the important bits. It's about analysis. The right hemisphere of the brain is much more responsible for matching things that at first seem not to be connected. And that's why the right hemisphere of the brain is responsible for humour and for empathy and and for those kinds of things that require taking two things and, and matching them together. Okay? At least as a metaphor, it's really helpful because if I was to ask you over your career as an educator and probably even of your time as a, as a student, which hemisphere of the brain have we emphasised most in schools? All right, I see people nodding over to the left. And if you can't see that immediately, I think it probably helps to rearrange those thinking styles into subject categories because if a, if a parent's coming up to parent-teacher interviews in, you know, in the secondary school and they know they're going to run out of time and they're not going to be able to see all of their son or daughter as teachers, which teachers do they make absolutely sure they're going to see? You know, it's the maths teacher, the English teacher, the science teacher. If they run out of time to see the dance teacher or the drama teacher or the art teacher, they think, well, you know, he's not going to be Tom Cruise anyway, so does it really matter? You know, but we're going to see the maths teacher. And I think the reason why parents value maths and science and English, and the reason schools value maths and science and English, is because Those subjects lead students to left-brain-directed careers. And again, if two parents are discussing their sons and daughters at a cocktail party, and one says, well, my daughter is is a lawyer, and the other one says, well, my daughter is a novelist, without any other information, people are going to just jump to the conclusion that the lawyer is very successful. She's doing well for herself. She's made it. And the novelist, people are going to assume, is probably really struggling to make ends meet. You know, it's obviously a, a stereotype and can be wildly inaccurate. Ask J.K. Rowling whether a novelist can be successful. Of course, they can be, but, but it's still broadly true, isn't it? That we sort of have this feeling that if our students can do these things, if our students have mathematical, uh, if they have numeracy and literacy, if they can become doctors or lawyers or engineers or computer programmers, then they should. And if they can't, then we'll look at these things for them. You know, isn't that that broadly true? But Ask you, because the reason is because we think that these are the skills, these are the careers that will give them prosperity. These are the, these are the careers that will, will make them successful. But if I was to ask you, what were the skills that guaranteed somebody success? Last century, I mean, like, not last century, but the century before, before the Industrial Revolution, what were the, what were the aptitudes and the skills that made somebody successful, that made them marryable, that guaranteed a regular source of income? You'd have to agree, probably, that it was physical strength, manual dexterity. If you were good, good with your hands and had a strong back, you were guaranteed a regular source of income. But with the Industrial Revolution, when that came... Thousands of people lost their jobs because a machine could do that work faster and cheaper and more reliably than a person. And and all of a sudden, the majority of the population that used to work with their hands were replaced by automatons that could do the same work faster and cheaper, more reliably, didn't join unions. And... (laughs) So we started looking for new jobs. And the knowledge worker economy was born. Now this is the place where all the opportunity was. These were the skills. These these left hemisphere directed skills um, became the place we wanted our students to be sent to. And we designed our schools to feed students into that economy, into that white-collar knowledge worker economy. And I think that's what we're still doing. We're still preparing our students for the 20th century knowledge worker economy now this century i want to argue machines aren't replacing the human back that happened the previous cent- century machines are replacing the human brain it's already happening and it's going to continue to happen but which side of the brain can machines replace You know, they can't do these things, but but machine anything that you can reduce to a series of steps, to a process, to a logical sequence, can be done faster and cheaper and more reliably by a computer than it can be done by a person. Let me give you a couple of examples. Remember this? When you got on a flight and the the hostesses did a little song and dance to show you the safety equipment? Um, Well, I was on a flight to New Zealand just recently, and... um, there were no hostesses doing their little safety dance. Instead, the screens came down, and virtual hostesses, or host, I suppose you'd call him, um, did the safety thing. Um, today, when I was flying up from from Melbourne, there was both. There was the screen, and then there was a hostess standing right underneath it doing exactly what was on the screen. And I was looking at it, thinking, well, oh, that's kind of redundant, isn't it? You know, she should be doing something else now. Um, we book our tickets online and we check in ourselves um, once we get to the airport. We go to the bank. Instead of seeing a teller, we interact with a machine. How much does this save the banks, do you imagine? And even the supermarkets are now getting us to to check our own goods out um, rather than needing to pay people to do it. And once upon a time, if you wanted an uncontested divorce, <laughs> you had to go to a lawyer. But now, for about one-tenth of the cost, you can go to divorce.com.au and fill it in yourself and get your uncontested divorce. So um, there's a lady writing that URL down <laughs> the back there. So this
1: <laughs>
0: Now... If you're still not convinced, this is a toy that my kids have. They bought it from Toy World for about $12, called 20Q. Have you seen this? And it, and it says, think of an object. So I'm thinking of a, of a kettle. And then it asks you 20 seemingly random questions. Is it bigger than a duck? Is it fun to play with? Does it matter if it gets wet? Can you eat it? Is it soft? And, and then, after asking these 20 questions, it says, you're thinking of a kettle, and, and I think, wow, isn't that incredible that a $12 toy can ask me 20 seemingly random unconnected questions and then tell me what object I'm thinking of with amazing accuracy. And it makes me wonder whether next time I'm sick, instead of going to the GP, <laughs> some kind of a toy that, that would say, you know, do you have a fever? Um, do you have a cough? Is there phlegm? Is the phlegm green? And i just sit down, yes, yes, no, yes, no. And they would tell me, you have swine flu, because really... <laughs> Most of the time, isn't that true, when you go to see the GP, what the GP does is they follow a decision tree that brackets to yes, no answers that they've memorised. And in the 20th century, that was a killer skill. To be able to memorise a big body of information systematically and be able to access it on demand was what made somebody really successful in that knowledge worker economy. But now, I reckon a $12 toy can do that. There's already a website that does it. The AMA doesn't like it. But it's possible. Now, I'm not arguing that um, that we won't need doctors in the future. Of course we will need doctors. Of course we need surgeons. We need people with those skills. But I, I, I think that the roles of doctors will change. I think that, that the skills doctors will need more and more are those sort of right hemisphere-directed skills, the ability to sit beside a, beside a patient and help them to feel like somebody understands what it's like to have that ailment. You know, We'll still need lawyers, of course, but not just the ones that can follow a process, for an uncontested divorce. We'll need the ones who can sort out messy situations and appease people when when it's a contested divorce, you know, and the ones who can stand in front of a jury and argue a compelling case, you know, using the very skills, in fact, that their drama teachers taught them every bit as much as the skills that their English and legal studies teachers taught them. The reason why I think it's important for us to to look at what we've been doing and and to question whether it's the way we should keep doing it is because of this book. This is a book by Michael McQueen, who's um, a social researcher based based in Sydney here. Um, I love this book. This is one of the best books I've ever read on education. It's not even about education. It's just about Generation Y. But I think if you're an educator, you really should read this book. It's awesome. And he makes a number, I think, of uh, a number of startling points. But I want to just raise two of them um, as I understood them, um, which had a big influence on me. The the first of them, he says, is Generation Y are more respectful than Generation X. And when I read that, I thought, hang on a minute, (laughs) this seems an incongruity incongruity because the the, the image we have of Generation Y is not that they're more respectful, but that they're less respectful. (laughs) But he says, no, they're actually more respectful. The difference is they're more honest. So... Our generation, my generation, Generation X, we would, we would shake hands with politicians, we'd say polite things to our teachers, but behind their backs we'd say all sorts of horrible things about them. We didn't have feelings of respect, we just had behaviours of respect. But he says, Generation Y, if they don't respect somebody... They'll just show them in their actions. They'll tell them in their words, even. Um, They won't try and hide their feelings of disrespect if they have them. But on balance, they're more likely to actually have feelings of respect than we were. I found that really fascinating. The other thing that he says is that Generation Y has a much greater need than we ever had to be connected to each other all the time. So I I see this. This is is my son's screen. I took a snapshot of his screen. You see he's got Facebook open. He's got MSN open. He's got um, Wiki. um, He's got... um, Word I'm looking for, um, uh, Wikipedia rather, and not not um, the other one that was on the news this morning. As I've been listening to it all day, it's confused me. Um, <laughs> he's got, got Wikipedia open. He loves e- editing the entries that are in there and waiting to see how long it takes for them to get changed back. And there's all this kind of interaction. In the holidays, um, he made this a little video, and. Um, He made this just using a regular digital still camera on a tripod. He just took thousands of photos of himself. Posted this on YouTube. And, I mean, our family was sitting there watching this thing and all the comments start pouring in. All these people are saying how much they love it. And other people started making, he called this an ordinary day. And then other people started making, um, <laughs> similar kinds of videos of their ordinary days. You know, it's, it's awesome. And there's all this, there's all this sharing and interaction and collaboration. And, um, and then he goes to school and,
1: the tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects?
0: You know, it's like, it's like out of this world of interactivity and sharing, he gets brought to school, put on a chair, and said, now, be disconnected. Now, don't bring your mobile phone. Close your laptop. You know, don't even talk to the person next to you. Now the only channel of conversation is between me and you. Be disconnected, and we wonder. Then, like, then of course, <laughs> then of course he goes home, and and you know, and, and there's this this world of connectivity again, where all these sites where you can upload and download videos and share things with people and comment on things, and and, and we wonder why it is that. They show us this great level of disrespect in the classroom when we're depriving them of their of, of this expectation that they now have to be connected. We could argue about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, this, this expectation of connectedness. We could argue about that, but it's kind of a mute point. It's, it, because it's not really a good thing or a bad thing, it's just a thing. We've shaped a tool, and the tool has reshaped us. And our kids just think differently about communication than we did. I was in a very fortunate position um, five years ago when my principal gave me a 50% time allowance and said, I'd like you to investigate Web2. Um, he'd just heard of YouTube and Facebook. Um, they were brand new five years ago. And he thought somebody should spend some time investigating that. And the genius of this was he said, he said, we don't want our IT specialist to do this because the IT specialist will come back and say, well, here's these great tools. And everyone will look and think, well, you know, course but look who you are you know we can't do that we're just ordinary teachers he said what we need is an ordinary teacher to investigate all of this stuff and he looked around the school and he said to me andrew you're as ordinary as anyone we've got do
1: you-? <laughs>
0: but it didn't take me long i mean look at this it didn't take me long to realize that there are literally thousands and thousands of Web2 sites. Each one of those things there is, is a link that will take you to some kind of a site where you can collaborate with people or talk on forums or upload or download videos or podcasts or photos. or it, it's, it's endless. And so it didn't take me very long to realise that even given my very generous time allowance, I wasn't going to have time to spend much time looking at any one thing. I had to develop some kind of a filter, some sort of a way of... of thinking about which ones would we spend our time on and resources on I want to share that with you briefly in the first part of it there's five parts of it the first part of it is time what would it do to time what would it do to my time because quite frankly teachers don't have that much time you know <laughs> so if I come back to my staff and I say to my staff you know here's this fantastic tool that I found you know using your computer that you can do and they're sitting there thinking well that's great but it's going to take me lots of extra time even if it's great it's not going to work so what would it do to my class time? Because you know how hard it is to get through a syllabus in a semester already. If somebody comes to me as a biology teacher and says, here's this great way of teaching photosynthesis, and I look and think, well, that is fantastic, but it will take me a week to do what I used to do in a period, how do I fit that in? I'm already struggling to get through the course anyway. And what would it do to my students' time as well? Because their time's quite precious too. So I decided that anything I was going to find and recommend and bring back to my staff would have to either be time neutral... Or hopefully save time. That would be the first thing. Secondly, would it let me do something I couldn't do anyway? Let me go somewhere I couldn't go anyway? Or would it just let me do what I've always done a little bit better? You know. So I look at interactive whiteboards, and I do like interactive whiteboards. I think they're great. I have one in my room. I think there should be an interactive whiteboard really, probably in every classroom. But it's kind of you know, doing still what we've always done, just in a cooler way. And not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, with incrementally improving what we do. And I'm not saying we should throw our babies with bath either, but I wanted to spend my time allowance looking for things that would let me teach in whole new ways, at times that I couldn't otherwise teach, in places that I couldn't otherwise teach, to people that I couldn't otherwise teach. You know, it had to be something brand new about it, or else I was going to say, well, that looks fantastic, but I'll leave that to somebody else to explore. Thirdly, is it what I call a space pen or a pencil? Um, you know, in, this is a reference to the, the space race when America and Russia were both trying to accrue space firsts. And in those early days, it was Russia who was ahead every step of the way. They did everything first. They put a satellite into space first. They launched an animal into space first. They put a person into space first. They got around the back of the moon, took photos of the far side of the moon first. They did everything first, really. And during those days, the Americans spent $11 million and thousands of hours developing a pen That could write in zero gravity, the space pen. At the same time, the Russians were using pencils and going into space. You know, now, a pencil's not as good as a space pen, that's true, but it works, and and I think sometimes in education circles we, we, We're waiting for the, you know, we're waiting for that perfect video conferencing suite to be installed in our school, because then, when we've got all that fantastic technology, we can connect with a classroom on the other side of the world or an expert at a university, and we can have our class interacting like that. But I'm saying, why don't we just use Skype on our laptops for free and do it now? You know, why? You know, when the technology, when the when the space pen comes along, we'll use it. But let's use the pencil we've got now. Fourthly, will they get better results? Because at the end of the day, we're educators. If our students aren't learning better, if we don't think they're going to learn better because of what we're doing with them, then I don't think it's something I wanted to spend time on. And, and fifthly and lastly, is it what I call a desire path? This is actually a term that I borrowed from landscape architecture because, you know, traditionally what you do is you put your buildings in and then you put the paths in and then you plant your lawns and gardens. But, you know, generation Y, they're not going to take an extra Five seconds to walk around the path when you can just walk straight across the lawn. And so they were these ugly desire paths across the lawn. And some progressive landscape architects are saying, what we should do is put our buildings in, then just put the lawns down, and then come back in a year and see where the paths are formed and pave those. They'll be better. They'll be more natural. They'll take people where they're inclined to go. Now, I'm not saying that we should just let students do anything they want, but when it comes to choosing this tool or that tool, Makes a lot of sense to me to just say, well, what the kids already do, can we use that? Let me give you an example. Um, MSN. I was working through the school courtyard a couple of years ago, and I've never, I'd never used MSN, um, but there was a group of my students who were just talking about a conversation they had on MSN, and and I just stopped and said, you know, how many of the kids in our class do you think use MSN? And one of them, a girl called Amy, said, well. Well, all of us, Mr. Doubts. That's what teenagers do. So I went home and I signed up for MSN. I looked up Amy, and um, yeah, she gave me she gave me her handle, and um, and she said, "Oh, how cool." A teacher online. Hang on, I'll get everybody. And, and within a minute, she'd, she'd brought in most of my class into this conversation. I'm asking them questions, and they're trying to answer them first. And I was asking them about what was working well in class and what wasn't. You know, it, it was great. It was really engaging. And um, you can see Peter, third from the top there, um, not long after this, um, said, you know, Mr. Douch, the footy show has already started. I hope you appreciate my commitment. And... Um, <laughs> and The next day I got this email from Peter's mum. Now I reckon that if you can get a year 11 boy to go skipping into the lounge room to tell his mum anything, you've found a desire path in his learning. Um, Or take take mobile phones for example. I mean, such a useful tool and in schools in Victoria, at least still banned in most schools or at least not, a, not allowed to be used in class. We, we decriminalised mobile phones at our school um, about a year and a half ago. We, decided, we, we said to kids they are allowed to bring them, have them on them, their person. They just have to have them on silent and not take them out in class unless they had the express permission of their teacher. So I went into class the next day and I said, well, you, you heard the new rules, so you now have my express permission to take your phone out and use it any time you want for anything you want as long as before you do it you just ask yourself, What I'm about to do, is it respectful to my teacher? Is it respectful to my peers? And if it is, go ahead and use it. And I reckon I've been disappointed maybe twice since then in a year and a half. Kids do the right thing when you trust them to do the right thing, in my experience. And the benefits have been awesome. This thing about saving embarrassment... Just very quickly, I walked into class, and um th- it was the day after actually, and my phone vibrated in my pocket, and I took it out. And it was a text from a girl who I was looking at. She was sitting right there in the second row. And it was the first time I'd ever got a text from somebody who could have just opened their mouth. And, <laughs> and it, it said, it said, Mr. Douch, I've had a really bad day. Please leave me alone today. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that sounds bad, but, it, 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 see, I knew what she, she meant. She, she, she knew that, I would see her sitting there, not interacting, and I'd ask her more questions and try and drag her in, and she just wanted to be able to just be there and be left alone. She could have come and said it to me, but she probably would have burst into tears and embarrassed herself. I thought that was really cool. The next day, one of my kids was off task, in the, you know, up the back, not doing anything wrong, but just kind of, you know, mucking around and distracting. So I thought, I'll text her. So, uh, LAUGHTER I took out my phone, Penny, get back to work. And, and I watched, and Penny took out her phone, and she looked at it, and she looked up at me, and she grinned. And she put her phone away, and she got back to work, and I thought, that's pretty cool. And you know, she's graduated now, but, but for the, for the rest of the year, every time I passed Penny, in the schoolyard I got the same grin from her and, and I stopped her at the end and I said look I'm giving some talks to, to teachers and we're talking about mobile phones and things can I, can I talk to you about you know obviously our relationship sort of jumped up a notch after that day and she said what was cool about that she said was you know you did what you had to do as a teacher and you told me off because I was doing the wrong thing but you did it in a way that didn't diss me in front of my friends and that was really cool, is, is the way she put it. And I think, you know, we have, we have a device here that enables us to communicate so effectively and efficiently. Um, we're prematurely locking it. Um, when there's so much potential for good there. And I realise that there are, there's potential for harm too. But I think, you know, we need to, we've got past, I think, the stage, we have to get past the stage where we think we can protect kids by just blocking and banning and stopping them from doing things. And instead, we need to be looking and, and working on the kids and educating them about ethics and morals and right behaviours and opening up the tools of communication. You know, when they do the wrong thing, we should be, we should be disciplining them and their behaviour not trying to block the tools they use to do the wrong thing. Anyway, um, there's also a whole lot of things you can do with phones that are so awesome. This is iPadio, um, iPadio.com where you can sign up for a free account. I have all my students do this. They can ring the iPadio number from their phone and make a podcast just by talking into a phone. Go straight onto the internet. It's already published. They hang up. It's on the, on the internet. It's awesome. Um, you know, you kids walking around with a little podcasting microphone in their pocket. We'll talk about podcasting now, um, because I think of all the things that I've played with over the last five years, podcasting is the the one thing that stands out to me as fitting those five criteria best of all. If you've never listened to a podcast, let me uh, create my experience. Now, that'll that'll do. But here I am, and I'm sitting in my car, and and it's like this panel of experts talking about the latest developments in technology. It's like they're sitting in my back seat. Instead of doing my professional reading, you know what that's like, I was more up-to-date, it was lively, it was engaging, I was really enjoying it. And I remember the exact moment when I drove into my school driveway, and I thought, wouldn't that be fantastic if my biology students could be learning biology like this? And so I decided that I would find them a biology podcast that I could recommend to them. And, um, and I really couldn't. So I figured, well, I've got a 50% time allowance. I'm going to spend some of that making a podcast. It took me ages because I had no, no idea how to do it. Um, and it was quite hard in those days. It's really easy now. But it was quite hard then. You know, I had to write an XML enclosure and everything. I didn't even know what that was. And um, now it's so simple. There are websites that do all of that for you. But I made this podcast. I put it on the iTunes store for my students. And it took three weeks before I went back and typed biology in the search field and my podcast came up as the number one hit. <laughs> you know, is that amazing? I mean, what does it say when a teacher with no IT background and no audio background makes a fairly amateur podcast for his 25 students in a little country town in north central Victoria and it takes three weeks to become the number one biology podcast in the world? You know, what is that? I think it says two things, really, doesn't it? Firstly, there is no competition. <laughs> and and secondly, there's a lot of kids who want to learn by listening to a podcast. In October, I had 22,000 people download my podcast. You know, don't tell me that people, kids don't want to learn. They just don't want to sit in rows on a Friday afternoon on a hard chair and be told who they have to learn from, when they have to learn it. And, you know, they want to have the choice of when they can learn, who they can learn from. You know, it's very exciting. And um, let me just play, I'm going to play just a tiny sample so you can hear how my podcast sounds now. Sound. This is Dauchy's Biology, episode one for 2011. The Mishon Pipe. this the coolest way to study you're down at the pool or you're hanging out at the mall you've got your headphones on look around everyone who sees you thinks you're listening to some cool music well let's let them think that shall we just nod your head and tap your foot i won't tell them what you're really doing if you don't it'll be our little secret and in the meanwhile let's study biology okay so, so you get the idea of it but is this a desire path well let me illustrate the answer to that question by, by showing you this. Uh, a student, one of my students, came to me um, not that long ago and said, "Mr. Douch, I, I found a video about you on YouTube." And I said, "Come again?" And she said, yeah. <laughs> said, "No, here's the URL." And I went and had a look. And here's a kid who I don't even know, who apparently listens to my podcast, who's made a song about learning biology by listening to a podcast. Let me play, I'll play the, a little bit of this for you, too. Hang on a second. Uh- into it, especially
1: Douchy, this is just a short tribute song to anyone who's ever nodded their head or tapped their foot to Douchy's biology podcast.
0: You get the idea. But I, I can't, but I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> Thank you. I, I can't remember in 18 years of teaching before that when a student ever wrote a song about being in my classroom. <laughs> well this, this, this was a tweet that came to me um, from a teacher in, um, in Ballarat, at Ballarat Grammar. Um, this tweet came in yesterday. Um, You've got to read from the bottom up um, in, in Twitter, um, but isn't this? This is the comment here. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that that a kid would be shaking because they see a teacher live? You know, I think <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, a, it's ridiculous. And yeah. and yet I see this kind of excitement in kids. It's like it's like a whole world of learning has just opened up to them just because they can learn from a podcast. It's, it's, it's almost ridiculous. Um, I going to play a little video. This was shot by the Victorian Government Innovations Branch. It goes for just a couple of minutes, um, but I think it's nice to hear from the horse's mouth.
2: It has it reinforces everything you learn as well as adding in some extra stuff that you wouldn't get time to cover. So in class, sort of four periods a week isn't very long to learn all of biology because there's a lot to discuss.
1: And it's really
3: good because the teacher also answers questions that he gets through emails and that as well and also corrects stuff through the textbooks through them.
0: I think they're more versatile than notes. Like, If you're looking at notes, you can't really look at them when you're at a desk or you're sitting down with a podcast and you just grab the iPod and you and go for a walk or you're in the car you're driving you don't have, it's hard to look at the notes then Whereas with a podcast it's much more
3: easier
2: um usually i get up early in the morning and i'll sort of put my offer in and go for a walk and that way you sort of walk for about half an hour which will cover the time and you just sort of you tend to absorb it more
3: mm-hmm. Well, I don't have an iPod at the moment, so I just use them at home on my computer through iTunes and I just sit there while reading my textbook. I listen to the podcast because usually they're in order through the book as well.
2: I listen to it when I'm walking home or in the car travelling or, like, before I go to sleep. I get up an hour early each morning and I listen to them before I go to school, and so I can lay in bed and listen to dendritic cells or um, viruses, and um, and yeah. And then when I get home from school, you know, it's tiring sitting down at your desk and trying to work, so I go for a walk or a bike ride and I listen to the podcast as well. And then when I'm getting ready for bed, I listen to them. So each podcast, there's a minimum I listen to it perhaps three times, and then I go over them for revision. If you can go over what you've learnt during class like by hearing it again and you can replay it over and over, so you can hear it as many times as you need to to understand it rather than having to go and get a second explanation all the time.
0: Um, I like that, That'll do. But you know, it's that, that's, that, that last point is, is key because how many times do you explain the same thing over and over and over in class? I mean, I look at what I do. You know, I'm explaining enzymes and I explain it one time and you explain it another time and you explain. And then half the class has got it and the other half hasn't. So what do you do? You explain it again, and now you're boring half the class who's already got it. Or or do you say, well, we've got to move on now and leave half the class behind? But if you record that in a podcast, if they need to listen to it five times for it to soak in, great. No embarrassment to them. If they need to listen to it once fine as well. You know, it saves so much time in class and it saves me time out of class. They don't come and see me to ask me to explain it again when it's getting close to the exam. They'll just go back and listen to that podcast again. So it saves me time at home too. for every hour I invest in making a podcast, I reckon I save many hours later on. Um, But the real great thing is that because it saves me class time, all those things that I would have once had to stand in front of a class and say to my kids, because there are some things that teachers just need to explain to their students, I don't have to anymore. So I can spend my class time doing things that are fun, things that, that you actually have to have people together in a room for. You know, they're engaging. More role plays, more discussions, more debates, more pracs. You know, the things that we know make for good learning but we often have to sacrifice because we've, we've got to get through the curriculum. We've got to lecture, so we default into lecture mode. Um, there are some things, of course, that we have to do in class. You've got to bring people together in time and space for. But I always think it's kind of ironic that we bring... All those kids together into a room, and then make them do something that's really uniquely individual. Um, you know, it's time we started asking, what things do we need to be doing in class? Do those things, and what things can we do better elsewhere? Of course, you can't explain everything in a podcast, so some things that need diagrams, like this, is a um, what we call a screen pedigree, and we can put a genotype on everybody and explain them. Um, I'll just talk over myself here. I noticed that um, Adobe is giving away one of their prizes, Adobe Captivate, that will let you do this kind of thing. Um, The the software I'm using here is ScreenFlow, but there there are many of them. Um, But, you know, this is the same lesson I would have once given standing in front of a whiteboard in a classroom. But by recording it once, putting it on YouTube, my students can just watch it whenever they want, as many times as they want, for as long as they want, at the time of the day that they want, on the you know, when it's convenient to them. Um, Saves them time, saves me time. And I suppose I just do a better job because I'm sitting there, there are no distractions, I can just focus on on my explanation i to give you some other examples, though, of how teachers, um, including me, um, have, have used podcasts. Um, this one's me. I, I, I taught astronomy last year, not my favourite subject, because everything that you talk about they can't see. It's the wrong time of the day. So, so I would just go outside and make a make a podcast. I look around um, the room, uh, around the sky rather, and, and you know talk about what's out there. Go back in, upload my podcast to the internet, and my students can download that and. Um, it's like I'm out there talking with them, um, and the microphone. There's a little microphone I use called Easy Speak. It's it's so awesome. You can just you just record your your voice. Pull the back off it, it's got a little USB dongle, and it's already it's already an MP3, and I can plug that into my computer and just copy it off like it's a, a USB flash drive. You now, fantastic little device, and it's not the only one there. Are, there are dozens of these little microphones that will record directly into MP3. This is exactly what I'm talking about. You, you don't need any more to be good with computers to do good things with computers. It's becoming really simple. I looked into the English faculty office um, some time ago, and the English teachers were all arguing about the book that they were teaching, and um, it was quite animated, um, almost heated, and I, I just stopped and I, I said, you, you should put a microphone on the table and record this for your students to listen to. You know, it's, it's so rich and exciting, you know, you all disagree with each other. This is great. And they decided not to record that conversation, because they were also bagging the principal and everything else. <laughs> um, No, they do. They, they record, have this semi-formal podcast. They'll... they'll uh is that too boomy? Does that sound to be boomy for you? Or is it just for me? Is that better? Better. Um, you know, they have this semi-formal podcast where they'll, they'll invite a few of their students to come and they'll, they'll just sit around and talk about a character or a chapter or a theme or whatever English teachers talk about. But it's, it's lively and engaging and you hear lunch papers rustling and the, you know, the bell goes in the middle of it and it's really informal, but it's letting them teach not at a different time than they otherwise would be able to, but in a different way than they would otherwise be able to. We have a a dance teacher, Um, you know, the problem here is, you know, girls have got 200 minutes to get their steps right before they're performing it at an assembly, a lot of pressure, she records her voice over the track they've choreographed. So the girls can now be upstairs in their bedroom at 9 o'clock at night going through the steps. It's like Mrs McGregor standing behind them, talking them through it. It it almost goes without saying, I think, that... um, Getting students to make a podcast is is just an, you know, you get students who are pretty ordinary students, you give them a microphone, they turn into John Laws. It's... In the girls' toilet, we got 84.
1: In the female staff toilet, we've got 74. <laughs>
0: um, this is our ceramics teacher, Narelle Baker, who, who said, I, I get this left brain, right brain thing. She said, half the time I'm, I'm over here working, you know, on, on the ceramics wheels over here, on the, uh, working on the ceramics wheels, um, showing kids again how you do that process. No, your wheel's going too fast. You put your thumb here. You, whatever. I'm doing that again and again and again. Meanwhile, over this side of the room, kids are trying to design pots. I'd love to be spending more time doing those kind of artistic, individual things with them, but I've got to go over here and show them these techniques again. So what she's doing is videoing her herself doing a particular technique. The kids come on, she's got a screen up behind the ceramics wheels. Kids come on, they wait till the video loops to the beginning, and there's Miss Baker explaining over and over and over how to do that technique. While the real Miss Baker's over the other side of the room working with kids on those right-brained activities that you can't automate. And we have a photography teacher and who's doing exactly the same with thing with Photoshop. Mask,
3: we use a black paintbrush. We make sure that we're using a soft
0: paintbrush so not hard. Um, you know, again, just automating those techniques so that the teacher can spend time you know, looking at the aesthetics of a photograph with students, the sort of things that you can't, you can't automate. I have a discussion forum, I and I I'll go into the, the forum here. What's important here, don't bother reading the biology, but the date is the critical thing. When I took these snapshots, So this was the 1st of November. If we scroll down, this is the 2nd of November. Still the 2nd of November. Still the 2nd of November still the 2nd of November. You see, what's happening is kids come home, they put their bag on the floor, they go to the computer, they log into Facebook and MSN and Wikipedia and the biology discussion forum, and they're out talking about a party here and football there and biology here. And and it's like what Michael McQueen said, it's not about the topic of conversation, it's just about the conversation itself. It's just this need that Generation Y has to be connected and feel like they're part of a community. and this year I've taught a class that didn't even have a classroom um, or a place in the timetable. We met online in the evenings um, when it suited us. We went for as long as we needed to. Um, using uh, this product is called Illuminate, and it's like a virtual classroom. Um, you can send them into breakout rooms. You can see each other. You can hear each other talking. You can write in a little chat window. Um, you can, everyone can draw on the interactive whiteboard at the same time. You can show PowerPoint presentations. You can do everything in there that you can do in a real classroom. It's awesome. Um, and we've done that the whole year um, as a class. And and I haven't got the results yet, of course, but I suspect they will have done very well because Matthew did biology with me a couple of years ago. He did Unit 3, that's Semester 1, with me, and then his dad got a job in Bahrain, so he had to leave the country. Um, He still listened to the podcast, still asked his questions on the discussion forum, and did just as well in the second half of the year as he did in the first half of the year, which makes me ask the question, what's really the value of coming to my class? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But but other kids too. There's a kid in Africa um, who who my kids got to know. He did become friends with some of the kids in the class, just wanted to get ahead um, before he got into into uni um, in Kenya. Um, Or here's a middle-aged woman who wants to go back and get her high school diploma. And, you know, it's hard when you're a mum studying as well, but she can be vacuuming and listening to a podcast at the same time. Or or a 13-year-old girl in Oklahoma who is just bored, and, you know, because her school's making her do Year 7 science when she's obviously much more capable than that. Or a girl in Melbourne who couldn't do biology because at her school, biology was blocked against another subject that she had to do. So she went to the principal and said, look, I found this podcast and a forum. He let her do biology without going to class. She got straight A-pluses and got into the course that she wanted to at uni. And a boy who was in and out of hospital with leukaemia um, got a B on the first exam and then having found the podcast and the forum, got an A-plus on the second exam um, and in fact, I got an email from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne um, not that long ago, and this nurse was saying they're now recommending that all their cystic fibrosis patients do biology as one of their subjects when they get to year 11 because it's one subject they seem to be able to continue to do really well in, even though they're missing half of their time at school. People often some say to me at, at this point in, in my, my talks, but, yeah, but what about IP? You know, it's lovely that you're giving this stuff away and helping kids in hospital and you know, in Africa, but, but you know we have to compete with other schools, you know, and if we just Put all our best stuff online and let anyone access it. What about our IP? And I get that, but I think it's sad, isn't it? You know, we didn't become teachers to guard our IP. You know, if we wanted to make money, if we wanted to be, you know, have that kind of industrial mindset, we shouldn't have become teachers. We became teachers because we believe that education empowers people and it enriches them and it makes their life better. And then somehow we get in a school and we say, well, we've created that. We don't really want, you know. I was I was talking about this over the dinner table um, not that long ago, and my son, because we're talking about a particular. Teacher who had said to me um, that she would never share anything with someone from another school, and and we were just having a a conversation about that sentiment. And my son, who's 15, said, "You know, what was she worried about? That students at another school might do some unauthorized learning?" You know, (laughs) (laughs) which I I think is priceless. Um, But what about if you put your stuff online, um, like, like, like here? You put this up on YouTube. But then put your school's name across the top of it, so that you know you're using it as an opportunity to advertise that this is the place to be. You know, if you're from another school or another training organisation, you can learn too. But we're going to make sure that you know that our school the place to be. Um, I, I think that's um, that's the way to go in the 20th century. The thing, of course, is that let's just bring people in. Um, this girl sent me a question that I didn't know the answer to. And I could have said I don't know the answer, but I thought, I'm going to find out. So I eventually um, got hold of Professor Doherty. If you don't know Professor Peter Doherty, he won the Nobel Prize for discovering how T-cells identify foreign tissue. It was his work that made tissue transplants possible. The guy's a legend of immunology. And... I rang him up and, and he just talked on his phone and I just recorded. I rang from Skype on my computer and recorded the conversation. Here's how it went. So, um, so Alex asks why um, in, in an autoimmune disease like juvenile onset diabetes, yeah. only one type of cell is targeted. And she wanted to know um, if, if that's because um, there's more than one type of MHC marker.
1: Um, I don't think that's the case. It's not It's not my area. I don't think that's the case, and I don't think we fully understand that. Though
0: there's a lot of research going on in that area. It's a good question, and uh so he basically said what I would have said, didn't he? <laughs> 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 but how much more profound is it when a teacher says, "You know, I don't know." Good question. The kid just thinks, "Oh, duh." <laughs> but when one of the greatest immunologists in the world says, I don't know and I don't think we have an answer to that, that leaves the kid thinking, all oh, right, I asked a good question. And it's, it's such a significant difference. It would be rude to ask Professor Doherty to come to Shepparton and speak to my kids. you know. I mean, the guy's obviously a very important, busy man. You can't ask someone like that to drive three hours into the country to talk to 25 kids. But when I rang him up and said, I've had 22,000 kids download my podcast um, last month, Would you mind having a (laughs) five-minute... Phone conversation that they can all hear, where we can ask you some questions that we don't know the answers to, and he was delighted to. You know, the conversation actually went for a good half hour. You know, um, it, w- it was awesome, and um, I didn't put most of that in the podcast, but it was, it was, you know, he was just delighted to be part of it. And it made us wonder: you know, if you're an English teacher, would you be able to have a conversation with the author of the novel that your class is studying? You know, if you're, if you're a PE teacher and you had a podcast, would you be able to get a, uh, you know, an interview with Matthew Richardson? Oh, he's a football player in Victoria. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon there's not that many people, are there, who wouldn't pick up the phone and, and just answer some questions if they thought that they were contributing to the education of lots of kids. Um, and, and a podcast gives us the opportunity to bring in those kinds of people. I'm almost finished here, um, which is fortunate because I'm also all, almost out of time. But... Um, I want to go back to that point about results, because at the end of the day, it's fantastic if we're doing different things, but if if the results don't show that kids are learning better, um, however we measure that. um, Leading up to 2005... Um, the VCAA, the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority, predict how every student will perform in every subject that they do based on, they do a, a big test called the GAT. It's like a massive IQ test, but it tests their aptitude and their ability to interpret humour and all sorts of different things. And then from that they say, well, we think this student is going to go this well in biology. Um, and then they look and see how they actually perform and we get results back showing... How our kids performed compared to how they would be expected to perform. In the three years leading up to 2006, my students were performing four study score points better than expected. That's pretty good, I was pretty proud of that. Um, and i worked really hard for that. Um, lunchtime classes, after school classes, holiday classes. I love graphs. I work hard for my gra- I'm actually a very left-brain kind of person. And I work very hard for my graphs. In my hierarchy of loves at the very top is my wife and four sons. Just a little bit lower is graphs. And, <laughs> and I wait for this data to come out every year. 2006, I walked into my class and I said, we're going to do school differently this year. Um, I said to them... It's more important for you to listen to the podcast, to go to the website and the discussion forum every day, than it is to turn up to this room. When you come here, this is like a tutorial. We're going to we're going to answer your questions. We'll do activities that support your learning. But the actual teaching that's in the podcast. The actual questions that's on the forum. You know, this is this is extra. And. Um In the three years after that, we've seen a fairly significant gain. I think, Um, you know, 12 percent—that's the difference between a B and an A plus in in biology in Victoria. You know, and that's pretty substantial. I think it's even better probably to look at individual students because if the VCA, if the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority says that a student will get a study score of 30, and they do get a study score of 30, their dot will be right on that diagonal line. Well, the last three years of data—that's where the students have sat. You know, so not only on average do they perform better than expected, but almost every student performs better than expected as well. You know, that's not a lot of data and it's only three years, but it gives me enough confidence to say that I think that when you connect kids together and make them part of a learning community, they learn better. I'd have been surprised, in fact, if, if in fact that wasn't the case. Because when I think about how I used to teach back in 2005, it was like this. You know, we're, we're doing photosynthesis today, and we have to get through photosynthesis today because tomorrow we're doing cellular respiration, and we have to get through cellular respiration tomorrow because on Friday we're doing ana- anaerobic respiration and fermentation, and we have to get through that because there's a, there's an assessment task on Monday. So if you don't understand photosynthesis today, you're going to have to come see me out of class, or ask your friend, or figure it out yourself using a your textbook, or something, because we've got to keep on moving through the curriculum. And it, it was like that. It was like. And then, then what would happen is it would rain on sports day, and. They'd I would move the sports day to my double period on Wednesday and it would be a disaster. You know, the whole year from beginning to end was just this stress to get through it. Well, this year I didn't even do photosynthesis in class. That was in the podcast. And in class, we've got time to just go deeper into the things that are interesting them or they're finding more confusing. You know, if they've seen something on TV and, and they just want to explore that, we've got time to do it. We've got time to do motivational activities. One time when they were feeling really flat and they thought the world was a bit unfair because they go to a government school and they're three hours from where all the revision lectures are and, you know, life's just not fair, Mr. Douch. We spent a whole period just Googling Helen Keller quotes, you know, to find out how somebody who who was treated more unfairly than just about anyone in history by life inspired herself to become such a great person and they went out of there motivated it was awesome but I never would have done that before Um, we've got time to do those other things and also just to build rapport which brings me to my very last point and sort of that thing about desire paths but also about results because results aren't just not just their academic results not just exam performance but also their engagement and their love of learning. And um, I want to finish by by telling you a story, a very short story. Um, This was my 2006 class, um, the ones that I went in and said, you know, we're going to uh, do things differently. And um, the photo was actually taken at the start of the year. But I watched these kids through the year, and I just had this gut feeling that they were learning well. For the kids they were, they were learning well. And in my head I'm thinking all year, I think my graphs will look good this year. (laughs) And the last day, you know I think in every teacher's career there's a few days that just really change everything. That a few days that just define your career. And, and for me the last day of my 2006 class was, was that day, it was a day I'll, I'll never forget. I actually get quite a bit, a bit emotional even just thinking about it. Because it's like I suddenly realised that it's not just about graphs and data. It's not just about these left brain things. Biology is all left brain. But 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 the results that I'd achieved in that year were as much right brain results as they were left brain results, and 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 I want to illustrate that just on this last day I, I was saying goodbye to my class. It was the very end of the, the last period, and I was saying good I told them I loved working with them, and you know, like you do. And and I and I and I said, and and it's you know it's goodbye, and. They didn't get up and rush out. They all just sat there. Nobody moved. And and I waited a minute and I said, it's it's lunchtime, it's time to go now. And they still just sat there. And as I looked around the room, half of them, easily more than half of them, had had tears running down their faces. You know, it was... I'd never seen anything like it before, at least not in a science classroom anyway. And (laughs) it was really very moving. I've seen it since. This year, someone started crying a week before the end. LAUGHTER (laughs) <laughs> I Just just at the mention, we've got a week left. Let's make it work. And she burst into tears and, and said, I'm not ready to finish yet. You know, it wasn't, I'm not ready for the exam. I'm, she just wasn't ready to leave the class. And I've seen it every year since. But that year was so significant because it changed. I went back to my office and my inbox was full of emails from kids. And I've, I've picked just a few of them and they've given their permission for me to to show them. If you're watching online, I've blurred out their faces um, Sorry about that. But um, but I'll just play them, and, and I think they speak for themselves. And just in case you're thinking they're all girls. <laughs> and I'm finished on this last slide. This, this is the most... Um, this was the most special one of all. I'll, I'll, I'll let you read it and then... I'll... Now, the reason why this one means so much to me isn't because she says I'm her favourite teacher because, you know, these kids are in year 12, they only have five teachers, which gives me a, you know, 20% chance. I... <laughs> but, what's amazing about this is that Naina wasn't in my class. Um, she didn't even go to my school. She went to a Catholic girls' school in Mildura. And that's 400 kilometres from where we live. And she'd only ever heard me teach in the podcast. And, and, and she'd ask questions on the forum. But when, a, when, a, when someone who doesn't even know someone, really, describes them as her, as the, her favourite teacher, I think that says a whole lot about Generation Y and how they like to engage in an online community and be part of a community of learning. And um, at, near the end of the year, she sent this bunch of flowers down to the school. They arrived at, at the school with a tag addressed to my class. And and it just thanked the class for letting her share the year with them, which I thought was just really lovely. And then after the exam was over, she sent a package to me and it contained her little green iPod and and a very moving letter. But in it, she she asked, would I please give her iPod to somebody in my next class who couldn't afford one as her way of paying it forward for everything she'd got out of the experience herself. And when I see that, and I see that kind of thing a lot... And I hear Michael McQueen saying that Generation Y is is capable of more respect than we were, but they need to feel connected with each other all the time. I think that's what he's talking about. So I'll finish on that note. Thank you very much for your attention. Um
3: Thanks, Andrew. And you've got us off to a fantastic start today, and so much there to think about. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where to But I just—we do have a few minutes for a couple of questions. There'll be mics. I will ask you to wait till you have a microphone so we can record that question.
2: Does anyone have a question? Thanks for that, Andrew. That's uh, certainly moved me and. Uh, reminded me a little bit of uh, Way m- many, many working lives ago when I was working in a school. And uh, it's really great to be inspired by how this work that we're doing at the moment uh, on e-learning, I work in adult education, but how much uh, integrated it needs to be right across the educational spectrum. My question is um, in relation to... How much your work is affecting teachers in other disciplines in, in your own school and uh, maybe what you're seeing elsewhere since 2006 with, with, with uh, talks like this. Because I imagine it's quite uh, difficult for some of these kids to go out of that sort of highly motivated learning, you know, uh, left-right brain learning environment that you're providing and then going straight into a maths and English session where they are going back into that or those teachers aren't necessarily um, being inspired themselves. So, yeah. Is this microphone? It is good.
0: yeah, look, a lot of teachers are taking it on. Um, maths teachers um, have started making screencasts, like the the pedigree thing. Um, so our maths teachers are systematically screencasting all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, the photography teacher and the ceramics teacher, and all those teachers that I showed there are all from my school. And um, so certainly locally, but but yes, I, I've gone and spoken at a, a lot of schools across Victoria um, and in New Zealand, and and. Hear back from them that they've seen, you know, lots of teachers taking it up. Because it's easy to do. That's the thing is, it's, you know, it, it's not like it used to be where, where it was hard to do these things. It's, it's, it's really easy to do now. And so, and I think teachers are just naturally, you know, they'll listen to this and they'll think, well, I wouldn't do that, but I'll do something similar that suits. I went and spoke to some plumbing teachers in Albury. And, um, and when they asked me to come and give the keynote at the, the plumbing teachers conference, I, I sort of thought, I don't think I've got anything to say to plumbing teachers. <laughs> but I was really wrong. And I went back up there. They've invited me to come back again next year. And and I went back up there recently and, and spent a bit of time with some of them. And this guy was showing me. And he's got he's recorded little vodcasts of... All the joins they have to do with pipes. And you're saying, you know, if I have to teach the apprentices again and again and again and again how to join a pipe, now I'm just recording it. They've got it on their iPods. And when they get, you know, they're trying to do it, they can just pull out their iPod and and I can explain it to them there. And, you know, so they've taken it on. Um, Primary school teachers, um, you know, have been doing it. And, um, I, I get really excited because it's just so versatile and has been taken up so easily by so many people.
3: One more question, and Andrew, are you staying around for a little while? I'll
0: stay around for a while, yes.
3: Okay, so you'll have a chance to talk to Andrew at Morning Tech. Hi. um, Have you got your whole curriculum Online with with all the or is it just pockets? Or have you I, developed the whole of your curriculum to be yes, presented I, in this way?
0: I I I do this through the whole year. Um, there are some parts of the course that's sort of lent, like the the genetics that lends itself to screencasting rather than podcasting. So I stop podcasting there and start screencasting. Um, but I I teach the whole curriculum that way. Then at the end of the year I clear it all off, do it again the next year so that it's fresh. Although I do cop I do cheat sometimes, and if I think. You know, I explain natural selection really great. And, you know, the kids all say that was great. I'll copy and paste that out from one year to the next. But, but I still teach it again on the podcast because that way kids can, they can be listening and they can ask a question. Their question gets answered on the podcast. So. I, I, you wouldn't want, I don't think, for just to produce like an audio book, um, and and that way you can talk about kids in the class too. And, and even though there's you know thousands of kids out there who download my podcasts and and learn from them, I'm still really just making it for my 20 kids, and um and so it's quite personal. You know, I I address it to them and talk to them as though they were in the classroom. So yeah. Thank you.
3: Well thank you very much Andrew and um, I'm sure that we've got a lot to think about and thank you so much for that. And just as a token of our um, appreciation um, we'd like to present you with
1: <laughs>
3: well one that won't follow um this little um, token of our esteem we thought might be very appropriate <laughs> given the current climate and In
1: <laughs>
3: it's a framework it's a framework logo but we do have a little quote on here which is um, I've got to credit Danny Cole, one of our conference advisory group, um, who came up with this suggestion, and he said he took the quote from our survey from this year saying that most vet teachers and trainers are doing something under the e-learning umbrella, even if it's just using online resources or allowing their students to electronically submit work. So well, thank you again. Lovely. Thank you very much. Please thank Thank you.